Oh, good morning, Grace Chapel. Good to be with you all today. Uh, we were away last weekend for a family funeral. I'll tell you a little bit more about that a little later. But I do want to thank Pastor Dave for jumping in at the last minute last week and to bring us a, a good, good message. So thank you, Dave. And before we get to the message today, I want to bring you a quick update on our Foxborough campus. Uh, as you know, a few months ago, we called Pastor Tom Boyclair and his wife Amy to uh, lead that campus as our campus pastor. So for the past couple of months, he has been meeting with people and gathering a core group of folks who will help to launch that campus. And over 100 people have expressed some interest. 60 or so have officially signed on to worship and serve for the first year to help that campus get launched. So that's exciting. Meanwhile, your generosity has allowed us to begin making renovations to that campus. So right now, the sanctuary, the lobbies, kid town space, and bathrooms are all being updated so that we can begin worshiping there. Uh, the core group will begin worshiping there in June, just a few weeks from now. And then in the fall, Sunday, October 8th, we will have a grand opening for the public and get that campus officially launched. So it's really exciting to see the things that are taking place. And I just want to let you know, if you'd like to be part of this very exciting adventure of launching a new church, you can do that. Whether you live down in that uh, part of the city or not, you are welcome to commit six months or a year to worship and attend there and help that campus get launched. Uh, I promise you, you'll, you'll grow in your faith, you'll meet some great people, and years from now, you can say, I helped launch the Foxborough campus of Grace Chapel, and uh, it'll be a great moment. So if you're interested in learning more, uh, you can reach out to Pastor Tom by his email there, or you can just visit the Foxborough page on the Grace Chapel website. Well, it was over 100 years or so ago that the poet Emily Dickinson was writing a letter to a friend of hers, a friend who was feeling low because her husband had to be away for a while. And feeling her friend's pain, Emily Dickinson wrote these words, the heart wants what it wants. The heart wants what it wants. She was describing the mysterious, powerful pull of the human heart. It defies reason and circumstance. It didn't matter that this woman's husband was away for a good reason, that he would be back soon again. Her heart wanted him home now and wouldn't be satisfied until he was. Well, a little phrase surfaced again some years ago when the filmmaker Woody Allen was trying to explain his decision to leave his wife, Mia Farrow, and take up a relationship with her 18-year-old adopted daughter. Speaking to an interviewer, he said, the heart wants what it wants. There's no logic to it. Didn't seem to matter that the relationship was inappropriate, that it was hurtful, that it was even scandalous, perhaps. He seemed to be saying that there's no denying the desire and design of the human heart. And then just recently, a couple years ago, uh, the singer Selena Gomez captured that phrase again in a popular song. Describing a dysfunctional relationship with a lover, she sings, there's a million reasons I should give you up, but the heart wants what it wants. The heart wants what it wants. Reason, it seems, and even common sense can be no match for the human heart. Yeah, but these are poets, we might be tempted to say. They're artists, so of course they're slaves to their emotions. But if you've ever eaten a peanut butter-filled croissant donut, 
or binge watch Netflix for six hours, you understand what they're getting at. There are times when reason and willpower are not enough to keep us from doing something foolish or hurtful or just plain wrong. We may not like to admit it, but we live from our hearts. And the heart wants what it wants. Now, as powerful as that phrase is, it really, the idea didn't really originate with Emily Dickinson. Thousands of years earlier, another poet, philosopher named Solomon, said something very similar. Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Everything flows from the human heart, he seems to be saying. Now, it's important to understand when the Bible talks about the heart, it's not just talking about our feelings, about our emotions. In biblical terminology, the heart describes the control center of human personality. It's the place where mind, emotions, and will all intersect. It is that deep inner place from which all our relationships and activities and attitudes are determined. So we don't live by our, our, our emotions necessarily, but we do live from our hearts. All of which raises a very important question for us today. Is your heart good for the world? Is your heart good for the world? This spring, we are considering the second half of our mission statement, discovering life with God for the good of the world. We began a couple of weeks ago by reminding ourselves that we weren't just saved from something, guilt or loneliness or despair. We were saved for something, for life of purpose and meaning and impact. Being a Christian isn't just walking with God through this life and going to heaven when we die. It's about joining God's mission to save and restore this world that he made, this world that he loves. And then last week, Pastor Dave helped us to understand that if we want to be good for the world, individually and collectively, then we need to be in the world and for the world, but not of the world. He described it as a faithful presence. We are faithful to God's distinctive call on our lives, and yet we are present every day in the people and places to which God leads us. And that faithful presence over time, like leaven working its way through a lump of dough, that faithful presence will, in fact, be good for the world and even change the world. And so now, beginning today, having laid that foundation for the next several weeks, we're going to be going to consider what it means to be good for the world in the various circles or venues of our lives. We're going to begin today with the heart because it all has to spring from the heart. What does it mean for our hearts to be good for the world? And then we'll talk about what it means to be good for the family, whether you're living with your family or not right now, good for the family. And then we'll consider what it means to be good for the neighborhood, the people and places you interact with from day to day. And then what does it mean to be good for my work, whether your work is at home or school or in an office or out in the marketplace somewhere? 
And then what does it mean to be good for the earth, this planet on which we live? And ultimately, what does it mean to be good for the nations, for the people God loves both near and far? And each week, as we work our way through those circles, we'll be trying to identify one faithful practice that will enable us to be faithfully present in each of these circles of our lives. So today, we'll begin this outward journey by thinking about our own hearts and asking the question, when is my heart good for the world? When is my heart good for the world? To answer that question, I'd like to take us to a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote many, many years ago to Christian people living in a region of the ancient world called Galatia. It's a part of the world we now refer to as Turkey. And we're going to pick up that letter to the Galatians in chapter 5, and I'll start reading at verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Now, Paul is telling us that our hearts can be animated, can be directed by one of two forces in our lives. One is the sinful nature, or the flesh, as it's sometimes translated. It's that fallen human tendency to please ourselves rather than anyone else or God. It's to serve our own interests, to serve our own desires. Instead of living for God, instead of living for others, we live for ourselves. And when we do that, it's not good for the world. It's not good for our families when we consistently put our needs and interests ahead of theirs, when we demand things from them, when we refuse to sacrifice or compromise, when we expect to be served, we want to have our way all the time. It's especially not good when you do that on Mother's Day. Okay, so let's get it right on this day at least. It's not good for our families when we live that way. It's not good for our neighborhood when we ignore people or treat them rudely or take advantage of them simply because we're in a rush or we can't be bothered or we want to have things our way. That's not good for our neighborhoods. It's not good for our work whether that's at school or home or out in the marketplace somewhere. It's not good for our work when we're lazy or careless or dishonest or so competitive that we'll do anything to win. It's not good for our planet when we consume more than we need, when we trash the environment that future generations have to live in. It's not good for, for the nations when we're so concerned with our safety and comfort that we are unmoved by suffering and injustice and spiritual darkness that many people experience around the world. And so when our hearts are controlled by that fallen human nature, it is not good for the world. In fact, Paul goes on to describe what life looks like when our hearts aren't right. It's not a pretty picture. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, 
hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's quite a list. Now, unfortunately, these things sell a lot of movies, a lot of music, a lot of TV shows. So it's not uncommon for these things to be glamorized or trivialized in our culture. But the truth is they wreak havoc on our lives, on the people around us, on our culture. You can't be good for the world when your heart is animated by any of these things. But that nature, that fallen nature, lurks within each one of us. Now, fortunately, there is another spirit that can animate our hearts, the spirit of God. And that spirit produces all kinds of good things, things that are good for the world. And Paul describes them in verse 22. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, this is that well-known fruit of the Spirit passage we mentioned a couple of weeks ago when we had that bowl of fruit up here on the platform. We reminded ourselves that fruit is good for the world. It's, it's beautiful. It makes the world more beautiful. It makes the world more healthy. It produces more life. And in the same way, when our hearts are right, our hearts are good for the world. That They make the world more beautiful and more healthy and more full of life. And so when our hearts pursue these things, love, joy, peace, and all the rest, when we produce these things, our hearts become good for the world. Our hearts want what God wants. These are the things God wants for human beings. He wants them for your life and the life of everyone you know and the life of everyone on this planet. And this really is what the world wants to see from us, isn't it? Friends, the world is not interested in our anger. They're not interested in our judgmentalism. They're not interested in our aloofness. They're not interested in us telling them how to live or why they're wrong. What the world wants to see is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. I mean, Jesus said it. They'll know we are his people by our love. And Paul adds all these others to the list. And so we know this is what God wants. We know this is what the world needs. We know this is what we want for our own lives. The problem is that we can't produce them in our own strength. This fallen nature we talked about that lurks within everyone, that fallen nature doesn't tend toward love, joy, peace, and patience. It turns, tends toward strife and jealousy and envy and discord. Now, we can try to be more loving. We can try to be more kind. We can try to be more self-controlled. And we can get it right for a while. But inevitably, that fallen nature rears its ugly head, trips us up, and ruins everything. Speaking of binge-watching, just recently, Karen and I discovered the old show, The Wonder Years, on Netflix. <laughs> if you remember, it's a coming-of-age series about... Uh, a suburban family in the 1960s. Like Kevin, the lead character in the show, I, too, was 12 years old in 1968. Bushy-haired, bell-bottomed, and dreaming about the kind of world 
that me and my generation might grow up into. And for many of us, it was an era in which we really believed we could change the world. We were going to make love, not war. We were going to give peace a chance. We were going to turn to flower power, not political power. We were going to throw off greed and racism and all the things that corrupt human society. We were going to get it right. But look at the world we have wrought. Our nation is as, is as divided and debauched as it has ever been. Our planet is in peril. Nuclear war is a threat once again. Racism has reared its ugly head. Heroin is back with a vengeance. And our homes and our lives are bearing the scars of the sexual revolution. We just can't do it in our own strength. All our efforts at self-improvement, at world-changing, they all come up short. They run out of gas, or they're corrupted by our fallen, sinful, selfish nature. But the good news of the gospel is that our hearts can be changed. When we invite Christ to take up residence in our hearts, to forgive us for those failures and to begin forming us into the people we were meant to be, our hearts can be changed. Our hearts can begin to want what God wants, the very things we've been talking about here today. And so we have a choice, Paul says. We can choose to live by that fallen, sinful nature that will always be with us in this life, or we can choose to be led by the Spirit of God who helps us to want what God wants. Look at verse 24 and 25. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with his passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. See, the Spirit of God will produce these things in our lives, just like an apple tree will produce apples. But here's the thing. Unlike an apple tree, we have a choice. An apple tree can't choose to produce prickly pears. It just doesn't work that way. But we can choose to produce things that are good for the world or bad for the world. And we make that choice by allowing the Holy Spirit to fill us with his life and to produce this fruit and to, to live through us and form us into the people that we were meant to be. And we make that choice. We make it the first time that we invite Christ into our lives, when we receive him as our savior, ask him to forgive our sins and begin making us new. That moment, Christ comes and he takes up residence in our hearts. His spirit lives in our hearts. But it is also a decision we make every single day of our lives as we choose to follow either that sinful nature or the spirit of Christ within us. Paul says, as we crucify the sinful nature, as we keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, on an ongoing basis, we surrender to the Spirit of God. We invite that Spirit to fill us and form us and help us to want what God wants. 
one of the most admired Christian leaders in recent memory is a man named John Stott, the familiar pastor, teacher, scholar. He passed away just recently at the age of 90, I believe. For over 30 years, John Stott served as the rector of All Souls Church in central London. He authored dozens and dozens of books. He mentored thousands and maybe tens of thousands of Christian leaders all over the world. And by all accounts, John Stott was one of the most gracious, kind, and Christ-like people you could ever meet. John Stott began every day of his life with a simple prayer, and he wrote it down for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that this day I may live in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That prayer was an act of surrender, of daily yielding to the work of the Holy Spirit in his heart. And Stott would be the first to tell you that it was the Holy Spirit that enabled him to do and be all that he did and was in this world. And talk about being good for the world. In 2005, Time Magazine ranked John Stott as one of the 100 most influential people in the world a humble, soft-spoken pastor-scholar changing the world because his heart was good. It was surrendered to the Spirit, and it wanted what God wanted for the world. Now, I know we struggle sometimes with that word, surrender. Sounds like weakness. Sounds like defeat. Sounds like we lose control of our own destiny. But that's not at all what the word means in a biblical sense. Let me take you back to verse 13, the beginning of the passage. Paul says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. You see, we were made to love. We were made to be humble. We were made to serve each other. And when we are free, that's the kind of people we are. We're loving, patient, kind, good, gentle, faithful, self-controlled people when we're free. The problem is that the sinful nature has hijacked our hearts and enslaved us to that sinful, selfish, self-reliant tendency. Only the Spirit of God can set us free from that nature and quicken our hearts to want what God wants, what's good for us and what's good for the world. And that happens when we receive Christ into our lives, and then as day by day, we yield to the Spirit. So here's how we might summarize it. Our hearts are good for the world when we want what God wants. And our hearts want what God wants when we are surrendered to the Spirit. Our hearts are good for the world when we want what God wants, and our hearts want what God wants when we're surrendered to the Spirit. Now, I mentioned earlier that we were away for a funeral out in Minnesota last weekend. And it was a sad and difficult weekend for our family. My son, Brendan's wife, Ellen, lost her dad suddenly just two days after his 60th birthday. Bill Ostland was a wonderful, godly man, 
a devoted husband, father, grandfather, a man who will be terribly missed by all of us and really by everyone who knew him. Here's a picture of Bill with the rest of the family. My son Brendan is off to his right there with his wife Ellen, and that's their son Davis that Tammy, his wife, is holding. And then uh, his son Mark and his wife Abby are there on the other side. Bill was a hockey fanatic. He wasted no time in getting his first grandchild on ice skates. And one of my regrets in his passing is that he and I never got to play pond hockey together, uh, which he was a big fan of. Bill was a hardworking, hustling real estate broker who knew boom years and bust years. He was a lifelong volunteer and leader with a national organization called Young Life, Christian ministry to high school and college kids. And he was a man who simply loved and was loved by, it seemed like, everybody in the twin cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul. As I sat through the memorial service last Saturday, and as I've been working with this passage this week, it struck me that Bill was the embodiment of everything we have been talking about today. And it just feels important to me to take a few moments and honor Bill's legacy and maybe extend Bill's legacy by reflecting on his life and faith just a little bit. Bill was born into a church-going family, but it wasn't until high school that he discovered a personal relationship with Christ. In her remembrance, his daughter Ellen said, my dad met Jesus in high school, and it changed his life. Not just a little bit. It changed the course of his whole life. Well, lots of stories about Bill's rabble-rousing days before he met Christ, but one of them apparently was he had this habit of stealing street signs around town. After coming to Christ, he felt convicted about that, so one evening he drove up to the sheriff's house, knocked on the door, and confessed to his crime. Now, the sheriff thought it was kind of cute until Bill opened the trunk and revealed dozens of signs <laughs> saying important things like stop, yield, and curve ahead. But that was the beginning of a lifelong commitment to following Jesus. Bill met Christ through Young Life, that ministry I described. So as soon as he was old enough, he began volunteering as a leader and serving on summer staff at the Young Life camps, which are famous for their impact around the country. And many of the people who spoke at the service were young people who were campers who were touched by Bill's ministry. And one of them uh, is a pastor now in Buffalo. He said, the day I walked onto the golf course and met Bill Ostland changed my life. I don't know what happens to the people who walk onto the golf course with you, <laughs> but if you walked onto the golf course with Bill, it changed your life. And he was just one of hundreds and hundreds of men and women who will point to the fact that it was Bill's love and Bill's presence in their lives that led them to faith and mentored them, and many of those people are serving Christ all over the country and all over the world today. Bill met his wife, Tammy, at one of those Young Life camps, and they built a happy marriage and a Christ-centered home together. His son, Mark, spoke about the many ways that Bill shaped his life and his character. And he did most of it, Mark said, without hardly saying a word. It was all action and presence with Bill. Bill worked in real estate for his whole career. 
One of his clients was the University of Northwestern, a small school right there in the Twin Cities. And over many years, Bill helped them acquire property and expand their campus. But he also offered them godly counsel and wisdom and strategic thinking along the way as the school grew. The school was so eager to honor Bill that they insisted that they host the memorial service on their campus in their auditorium. And they dedicated their facility and their staff to support any way they could free of charge. Now, along the way, Bill served all the churches they were part of. He and his wife, Tammy, taught Bible study fellowship for years. And as I mentioned, he was involved with Young Life in all kinds of capacities throughout his life. Ellen said about him, there was never a season when my dad wasn't serving. Not when he was busy at work, not when the kids were little, not when money was tight, not when he was discouraged. There was never a season when my dad wasn't serving. Bill entered my life when Brendan Allen got engaged some years ago. And shortly after that, Bill called me up. We'd never met before. And he suggested it might be a good idea if he and Tammy and Karen and I began praying together for the kids in preparation for their marriage. Now, I was only slightly embarrassed that the real estate guy had to remind the pastor (laughs) it's a good idea to pray. But he was right. And we began doing that, consistently praying for the kids as they got ready for marriage. As hyperactive as Bill was, he found a fifth gear when he became a grandfather just a couple years ago. He immediately converted their two-car garage into an indoor hockey, basketball, soccer, lacrosse arena. (laughs) And he would spend entire afternoons there playing with Davis. The last year alone, he made 13 trips from Minnesota to Denver usually to help out watching Davis while the kids were busy or traveling with work. He and I actually overlapped on one of those trips, and we kind of tag-teamed caring for Davis while the kids were away. He and I described it as two old men and a baby. (laughs) And we had the best time together. Bill gave me the freedom just to be myself and, and prompted me to want to be my best self. And that was the impact he had on every single person he met. As Ellen said, Bill knew he was loved unconditionally by Jesus. And so he offered that same love to every single person he met. And I tell you all of this simply to help you understand how one life can be good for the world. Bill was not famous or wealthy or powerful by this world's standards. He wasn't a pastor or a missionary or a president or the leader of some institution. But there were over 800 people at his memorial service and hundreds more who would have gotten there if they could. But here's the thing I don't want you to miss. The final speaker was an army chaplain. Again, one of the many people Bill had influenced along the way. And he decided to help us understand why Bill was the way he was. And he said it didn't have anything to do with his temperament or his energy or any of those kinds of things. It was all about the personal time that Bill spent every day with the Lord. The disciplined time is the way he described it. Now, at that point, we all began to laugh because Bill had ADD off the charts. I mean, it was the first thing he would tell you about himself, but the truth is you would have known it already. He struggled with it his whole life. He was always on the go, never slowed down, except for those moments he spent each day with the Lord. 
And he found that the Book of Common Prayer, the structure and rhythm of the Book of Common Prayer, helped him focus and keep that daily commitment. And it was that practice, that faithful practice, that shaped Bill's heart and made him good for the world. Three words kept coming up in all the stories that were told about Bill. Love, joy, and peace. Because daily, Bill surrendered to the work of the Spirit in his heart. And that's the part of Bill's legacy I'd like to leave us all with today. And the reason I take this time. None of us can be like Bill Osland, and we're not supposed to be. We're supposed to be ourselves. But we're supposed to be our best selves. The selves that are characterized by love and joy and peace and patience and, and all the rest. And that begins with hearts that want what God wants. Hearts that are surrendered on a daily basis to the Spirit of God. And so each of these weeks, we want to introduce one faithful practice that can allow us to be faithfully present to the world around us. One simple thing we can do in each of these circles of life. And the one we'd like to introduce for this week is daily surrender. Daily surrender. And I'm not just talking about your devotional time. That's certainly important. But I'm talking about a deliberate, intentional moment when you surrender the control of your day to the Spirit of God. You, you die to your sinful self, and you ask the Spirit to fill you and animate you. Because when you get your heart right, everything else flows outward from that. So you might want to use John Stott's prayer. And we'll put it back up on the screen in a few minutes, if you are even now, if you want to take a picture of it. But you can Google it, and you'll find it. Maybe you want to write your own prayer in your own words. Or maybe you want to make it spontaneous each day. It doesn't matter. The point is to mark a moment each day, morning, noon, or night, where you consciously, intentionally, deliberately yield to the work of the Spirit in and through you. Now, it could be that you've never received the Spirit of God because you've not yet turned to Christ in faith, asking him to forgive you of your sins and begin making you new. You've never had that life-changing encounter like the one Bill and so many of us have had. That's where the whole thing begins. The first time you hit your knees and say, Lord, I am not the person I want to be. This is not the life I want to live. Forgive me and set me free to be the person that you want me to be and that I want to be and that the world needs me to be. That's where it begins. And if you've never done that, you can do that today. But once you've done that, it's not over. Now it becomes a daily decision to surrender each of our days and every part of our lives to the Lord. And he will change you from the inside out. He will give you a heart that's good for the world if you faithfully practice a daily surrender to the Spirit of God. So let's conclude today by praying together that simple prayer, the prayer that John Stott used each day. It's on the screens. Let's just read it out loud together. Heavenly Father, I pray that this day I may live in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself 
and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayer today and for the promise that you will fill our hearts with your presence. May we leave here today to be good for the world. In Jesus' name, amen.